0: As the title of tonight's sermon indicates, it's about peace. It's about the peace that's described in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom God is pleased. This sermon is about three ways in which we can experience peace at Christmas time. And I want to begin by talking about one of my favorite movies from when I was a kid, a teenager. And I'm talking about Back to the Future. (laughs) For some reason, last week I was feeling nostalgic, and Back to the Future was on one of our streaming services. And so I started watching it. And before too long, my two boys wandered into the room, and they watched it too. They'd never seen it before. And I'm happy to report that they liked it as much as I did when I was their age. And in case you don't know, the movie is about time travel. An eccentric scientist named Doc Brown has created a time machine out of a DeLorean sports car. There's a scene near the beginning of the movie in which Doc Brown is showing off the features of his time machine... And he explains to his young protege, Marty, played by Michael J. Fox, that you can simply enter any date in the past or in the future in this dashboard computer, and if the DeLorean reaches the speed of, what is it? 88 miles per hour. I don't remember how many gigawatts or gigawatts it was supposed to be. (laughs) One point what? 1.21 gigawatts, not gigawatts. But anyway, um, then you will travel through time to that particular date. At one point, Doc Brown tells Marty, you can go back in time and witness the birth of Christ. And then he proceeds to enter this date on the dashboard computer. December 25, 00, Zero, zero. There are only two problems with this. First of all, we don't know the exact date of Christ's birth. The church chose to celebrate that birth on December 25th, but it wasn't because they thought that this was necessarily when Jesus was born. But even more importantly, there was no year zero, 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 zero. The In the modern calendar, it goes from uh, 1 B.C. to A.D. 1, from 1 to 1, with no zero in between. Also, we know for sure that Jesus was born sometime between 6 B.C. and 4 B.C. Regardless, let's let's give Doc Brown some credit. He rightly understands that Christmas, the first Christmas, is one of the most important dates in the history of the world. Indeed, when this army of angels in verse 14 sings their song, glory to God in the highest, they are saying, in effect, that of all the things God has done up to this point in history, sending his son Jesus into the world is the moment of God's greatest glory, a glory surpassed only by Christ's atoning death on the cross and his resurrection about 33 years in the future. But up to this point in history, Christmas is the most glorious event. God enters our world as a flesh and blood human being. To be sure, no one at the time of Luke chapter 2, aside from Mary and Joseph and these shepherds, had any idea just how glorious the events of Christmas actually were, at least while those events were going on. After all, if you want to talk about glory, let's talk about that man that Luke mentions in uh, verses 1 to 3, Caesar Augustus. Now that's a man who was glorious according to the world's standards of glory. He was more glorious than any human being who ever lived. In fact, the the same words with which the angel describes Jesus, words like Savior and Lord, the bringer of lasting peace into the world, those are precisely the words that people used to describe Caesar Augustus. According to Roman religion, when Augustus's adoptive father died, Julius Caesar, um, he, he was worshipped literally as a god. And archaeologists have found coins and inscriptions that indicate that Caesar Augustus was hailed as the son of a god. Does that sound familiar? I mean, look how powerful Caesar is. He has the power, for instance, to move at least, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of his subjects across his empire, like chess pieces across a chessboard, all for the sake of an empire-wide census. In fact, he has the power to move a man named Joseph and his, what, eight months-plus pregnant fiancee Mary about 90 miles south from Nazareth to their hometown to Bethlehem just by saying the word. That's power, at least as the world measures it. What Caesar Augustus doesn't know, of course, and what Mary and Joseph probably also didn't know at this point is that Caesar isn't really doing anything special. He's he's doing nothing that God hasn't put in his mind to do. Caesar, the most powerful man in the world, is doing the bidding of a God he does not worship or believe in. Caesar has no idea that by calling for this census and moving Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem, he's actually playing a necessary role in fulfilling what the prophet Micah spoke 730. Fifty years earlier. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Micah prophesied, in other words, that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, David's hometown. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, there's an inconvenient fact here. Um, The Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Unfortunately, the Messiah is currently in the womb of a young woman living 90 miles north of Bethlehem. And this young woman is way too far along in her pregnancy to be making a big, long trip. This fact would appear to put God's promises in jeopardy, would it not? Well, only if we forget how powerful our God is. We say, this is a big problem. God says, this is no problem at all. Just as it was no problem for God to move the heavens and the earth at just the right time and in just the right way to get the attention of the magi or the wise men who who traveled then 700 miles probably west from the Persian Gulf area to Bethlehem so that they could worship the newborn king of Israel. This is no problem for God. Despite all appearances, contrary to the way things in the world so often appear to us mortals who who can't see things from God's perspective, everything is working out precisely according to God's plan. Now, look at verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Pastor Chuck Swindoll says the following about that verse. He says... The Greek term translated treasured means to preserve, to guard, or to keep watch. The accompanying verb rendered pondering literally means to bring together, much like someone arranging the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. For Mary, the last nine months had included an angelic visit, a difficult announcement, the near collapse of her engagement, and less than ideal circumstances for childbirth. She must have recalled Joseph's anguish and his unflinching obedience to the will of God. She probably marveled at the timing of the census, the birth of God's son in a stable, and the worship of shepherds and later of magi. Her memories formed a complex and curious puzzle that dared to be solved. For years to come, Mary would arrange and then rearrange everything she had experienced in order to make sense of it all. Mary is literally the world's first Christian and <clears throat> and she is a faithful role model for all of us to emulate but but she's no different from us in the sense that we can do the same with our lives. We can ponder the events of our lives and wonder how God has pieced them together like a jigsaw puzzle to fulfill his plan for our lives. And we can be sure God is doing this because God is no less involved in our lives. If we're his children, God has a plan and purpose for our lives every bit as much as he had a plan and a purpose for Mary's life. Listen, I began this sermon by talking about Back to the Future, the main theme of that movie is that it's up to Marty and Doc Brown to fix the events of history so that everything works out in just the way it should, and if they don't do this, that, or the other thing in exactly the right order and at exactly the right time, then their lives and the lives of people they love are going to be ruined. And we often feel that way too, right? For instance, when I think of things that I worry about, things that frustrate me, things that cause me to lose my temper, things that cause me to feel sorry for myself, it's so often because I perceive things are not going according to my plans. But my fears, my frustrations, my anger, my self-pity come from a misplaced confidence that I know how to run the universe better than Almighty God and and that it's all up to me to make sure that everything works out perfectly. How about you? Gosh, how do you think Mary and Joseph felt when they realized that they would have to travel these 90 miles or so while Mary was so far along in her pregnancy? Surely they were at least tempted for a moment to think that God had forgotten about them. The idea that this was a part of God's plan from the very beginning of history probably didn't cross their minds. To say the least, brothers and sisters, if God in his sovereign purposes is powerful enough to make his plan for Mary and Joseph work out in order to fulfill his promises. Don't you think, don't you think that he's powerful enough to manage your life, to solve your problems, to fulfill all the promises that he's made to you? For example, the promise that in all things God is working for your good, the promise that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. The promise that his grace is sufficient for you, for God's power is made perfect in weakness. The promise that when I am weak, then I am strong. The promise that in Christ we can learn in whatever situation to be content, for we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. The promise that our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. The promise that even when our heavenly Father disciplines us, he always only does so for our good. The promise that nothing can ever separate us from God and his love if we believe in his son Jesus. If any scripture proves that God really does know how to run the universe and our lives within it, that he really doesn't need our help to do so, surely it's tonight's scripture. So this is my first point. The first way we can experience peace at Christmas time is to remind ourselves of something that Joseph and Mary surely learned. Despite the way things appear sometimes, God is in control of our world, and God is working out his plan for our lives, even through surprising and often difficult circumstances. Now, let's move on to. Point number two, the second way we experience peace at Christmas time. Remember that episode in the Gospels involving four friends who have a friend who's paralyzed. He can't walk. And they want to get their friend to Jesus. So they put him on a mat and they carry him to the place where Jesus is teaching and preaching. It's in a house. Unfortunately, the house is packed. They're standing room only. There's no way they can get their friend to Jesus. But they don't give up. They're persistent. They go on the roof of this house, and they literally break a hole in a thatched roof above the place where Jesus is standing, and they lower their friend down on this mat, and they plop him in front of Jesus because they know Jesus has the power to heal him. So um, what does Jesus do when this paralyzed man is laid in front of him? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And I would not be surprised if the thought that crossed the minds of these four friends was, now hold on, Jesus. (laughs) Do, Do you think that we went to all this trouble so that you could merely forgive his sins? Forgiving his sins is no big deal. That's easy. We wanted you to do the hard thing. We wanted you to heal our friend physically, a a, a physical miracle. Now, that's hard, but Jesus knows what they're thinking, and he ends up healing the man physically, but it's only to prove that he indeed has the authority and power and ability to heal the man spiritually by forgiving his sins. From Jesus' perspective, you see, forgiving this man's sins is a much bigger deal. Indeed, as I'll explain in a moment, a much more difficult, much more consequential, much more impressive feat for Jesus to perform than merely performing a physical miracle. Jesus, after all, is God, He is God in the flesh. Physical miracles, as I've said, are not hard for God to pull off. He can move stars and planets, and he can move the hearts and minds of powerful emperors with ease. But to forgive sins, to give someone eternal life, to make someone a part of God's family, to heal someone spiritually... This thing that we take so lightly, that we often take for granted, this is a thing that from Jesus' perspective is incredibly hard. Was it not hard? When Jesus, God in the flesh, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, was it not hard when he sweated drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed that his Father, if possible, would take away this cup of God's wrath that he would soon drink down to the dregs? Was it not hard when he endured the beating? the mocking, the crown of thorns thrust on his head, the nails driven through his hands and feet. Was it not hard when Jesus experienced a God-forsaken death, the suffering, the separation from his Father, the hell that we deserve to suffer on the cross? Was it not hard when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what the forgiveness of sins cost God. God paid for forgiveness with the blood of his son Jesus, which is to say, because God is a trinity, God himself paid for it with his own blood on the cross. That's the only way forgiveness is possible, that God could somehow become one of us, live the life of perfect obedience to his heavenly father that we ourselves are unable to live, die the God-forsaken death that we otherwise would have to die, suffer the hell that we would otherwise have to suffer. God loved us enough to do that. That's hard Yet that's what God did for us out of a love we can scarcely comprehend. God purchased our forgiveness with the shedding of his own blood blood, which is the only way forgiveness is possible. And how does God have blood to shed in the first place? How does God have a body that can bear the punishment for our sin? How does God become a perfect substitute for us human beings? How does God die in order to save us? How does God conquer death in order to give us resurrection? By becoming human And that's the meaning of Christmas. That is what we are ultimately celebrating this evening. And maybe some of you are thinking, Pastor Brent, I I think you're confused. Because you see, you're talking mostly about Good Friday, maybe Easter Sunday. Maybe you got your holidays mixed up. This is Christmas. It's not Good Friday. It's not Easter, but friends. If you're thinking that, you, you don't understand that the true meaning of Christmas is Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So, this is the second way we experience peace with God at Christmas. The Bible says that our sins have made us enemies of God, but now through faith in Christ and faith in what He accomplished through His atoning death on the cross. Now we can have peace. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5 1. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Now I want to talk about the third way in which we experience peace at Christmas time. This is my last point. And in order to make this point, I'm afraid I'm going to be talking about one of my best friends, my beloved English Springer Spaniel, Ringo. Now, if you're a regular attender of this church, you undoubtedly have heard me speak about my beloved Spaniel. I'm seeing heads nodding, but um, I checked my sermon archive and I have not talked about Um, Ringo, my spaniel, since September. So it is long past time for me to use Ringo in a sermon illustration. Um, I've said this to some of you already um, during this Advent season, but it is almost worth having my kids living away from home at college even though I miss them something awful. But it's almost worth it because I'm not sure there's anything better in the world than that feeling that I feel when they come home again. And we have them under the same roof, which we do right now, which is why I love Christmas time so much right now. All three of my kids are together at home. But you know what? I think Ringo loves it as much as Lisa and I, maybe even more so. Because when my kids sit down on the couch, he jumps on the couch and he puts his head in their laps. He is always right where they are. He is always trying to make physical contact with them wherever they are. He wants to be with his Three best friends all the time. In fact, one of our kids who uh, is normally away at college uh, has a bedroom uh, downstairs where Ringo spends most of his time. And every morning, Ringo lies down outside the bedroom door, leaning against the door, just waiting for his best friend to wake up and come out. He's whimpering in pain. He's so desperate to have her open the door. Um, And then when he gets to see his best friend, well, it's like uh, Ralphie says in that movie, The Christmas Story, all is right with the world. My dog is no longer restless, no longer anxious, no longer sad. It's as if Ringo were made to be with his beloved best friend and nothing satisfies him until his deepest wish comes true. The Bible says that Jesus is our best friend. In fact, Jesus is. In so many words, it says that he is our best friend. We are made to be with him. We are made to be in a personal relationship with him. We are incomplete. Our lives are incomplete apart from him. Just like Ringo leaning against my child's bedroom door and whimpering, we are restless until we can be with him. And when we get to know Christ As our best friend, which we can all do when we believe in Him, we can find peace. That's all I want for anyone, for any of y'all at Christmas time, that you would find and know and rediscover and enjoy and more deeply experience the peace that comes from Christmas, that comes from knowing for sure that God is in control and is working his plan in your life, that comes from believing that God has done everything necessary to forgive your sins and make you a part of his family forever, that comes from experiencing Jesus as the best friend in your life. So in response to this message, let's do what we see the shepherds do in tonight's scripture in verses 15 and 16. We can only do this in our hearts right now in a way, but, but let's do what they do and let's go with haste in order to be with Jesus. In fact, we have an opportunity even this evening to do that in a symbolic and sacramental way when we come to the Lord's table for Holy Communion which in a moment I'm going to invite you to do. Holy Communion, by the way, in our United Methodist tradition is open to everyone. Thanks for listening. If you're in the Toccoa, Georgia area, I hope that you will come and worship with us at Toccoa First. We have live in-person worship every week, and we also have online worship. Please see ToccoaFirstUMC.org for more information.